You may have heard about an AI writing tool called ChatGPT, or perhaps DALI, or Midjourney, or something else. There's been a lot of artificial intelligence tools and a lot of buzz about them in the news recently. You may have heard that college professors are wringing their hands, wondering if they'll be able to trust a student's term paper was actually written by them. One of the AI tools recently slipped past the judges at a Colorado State Fair to win first place in an art competition, and other AI tools are able to pass the exam requirements for major universities. We've gone from AI being a thing that will be here soon to something that's here already. And there's been a lot of debate over the ethics of AI and whether it's good or bad. But when it comes to technology, we have to accept the world as it is. <laughs> and AI is here. And so the question is, if you're going to use AI, how do you do it? And how do you do it well? Find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. And I did a rundown of AI tools for authors last year where I went through the different kinds of tools that authors can use to improve their writing from copy editing to developmental editing to covers to brainstorming. That post has become one of our most popular blog posts of all time, especially the last year as it's ranking. A lot of people have discovering the podcast based off of that blog post. We also did a deep dive on PseudoWrite, which is one of the better tools for helping you write that are out there. But with all the buzz about AI recently, I thought it'd be a good time to revisit this topic. And so I saw on authormedia.social that one of our listeners was doing some incredible things with AI. In fact, I'm going to link to his original post where he breaks down step by step what he's doing with AI and how he's using it to make his books and his covers better. He writes high fantasy and he's used AI in some really cool ways for his Analyst series. Danny F. Santos, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you for having me, Thomas. It's great to be here. The first I saw of your dabbling with AI was when you asked for feedback on your book covers and you didn't say these are AI book covers or AI assisted book covers. You just had eight different book covers for two different books, and you asked everyone to vote, which is a really popular kind of post on authormedia.social because everyone loves having their opinion asked. <laughs> so later you're like, oh, yeah, by the way, all eight of those were AI generated. So walk us through how you made such good looking covers using AI tools. Well, like everything, it, it takes a little while for you to understand the language of AI prompts. And it basically is just a text box. And you have yes. to put something in that text box to get the art back out. So when you're saying prompts, because I know you're, you're really savvy with AI, so I'm going to be explaining the terms as we go. <laughs> so for somebody who's never done AI before, there's no magic button. There's no like, read my mind and give me a great cover. And you push the big red button and boom, you get a book cover. You have to learn how to talk to the computer in a way that the computer can understand. You have to kind of inspire it. So the spark of creativity, literally the spark that starts the fire, still exists in the human mind. So that's a, the real skill, creating the prompts. So how do you approach creating a prompt? You know, How do you spark the AI to get it going in the right direction? You just more or less describe what you see in your mind, and you try to sort of write it out. 
That's a very simple way of looking at it. The more complex aspect of it is if you want a character to have red eyes, for example, what usually happens is that the AI will think, oh, they want this image to be red and it will make everything red, even though you might want the character to be wearing something like blue clothes. A lot of it is really just trial and error until you get something approaching what you're kind of looking for. And even then, it will never give you exactly what you're looking for because it just generates so many different possibilities. And you used MidJourney for generating the art. Is that right? Yes. So with MidJourney, the reason I went with it is each AI actually has their own kind of flavor. And MidJourney is a little bit more illustrative, which I personally like. It, it looks a little bit more like a painting. And in my genre, which is high fantasy, that's usually what does a little bit better. So that's why I gravitate toward it. Something like, I believe Dolly is a little bit more stock photography looking, more or less. So when I'm looking at these covers, I can tell you were kind of exploring. You got this girl with red hair. So you knew for sure, I want the protagonist on the cover. And then you didn't know what other elements you wanted. So the A version has her and a young man. The B version has her and, the, and an old man. I'm assuming these are two different characters from the story. Then you have a few that are her in different settings or, or in different poses. These all look great. So how do you then choose which one you want to be the one that wins? Cause, you know, I'll, I'll share them all on the, on the website and you can all vote, but you ultimately had to make the call, right? Because you can only put one cover on the book. How do you decide which one wins? In this case, my original idea was to cut down the amount of covers I was going to choose from by using groupthink, trying to get enough people to vote on it. And so for each of the covers, there's my first book and the second book, I wanted to narrow it down to two. And from there, I was going to A-B test it, use Facebook advertising. And then we get into a little bit of an issue, which is when I had the choices all picked out. I forgot that there was another cover I wanted to introduce into the competition. And so I decided, oh, I'll just add this third cover into my Facebook ads and then ABC test them, basically test all three of them. And the one cover that wasn't part of anything is the one that started to win by quite a large margin. And so an AB test is where you run ads on Facebook or somewhere else, but Facebook's the most common. And Facebook will show your target audience at all three versions. And then Facebook will monitor to see which version is getting the most clicks. And you get all this really great data. You can see how many impressions it got, how many clicks it got, what the click-through rate was, et cetera, et cetera. And Facebook will eventually decide which one is the best performing and just show that one. <laughs> or at least often that's what happens. And so it's, at least in my experience, it's often really surprising. Because the, the winner of a split test is not necessarily the one that you liked the best or the one that I like the best. It's the one that the readers like the best. And it's a really great way of getting rapid feedback. How much did you spend on that split test approximately? I'm pretty sure it was something like $50, $60, something like that. It was enough to run about 1,000 views per cover was the goal. This is such an effective strategy. And for 50 bucks, I don't know why every author doesn't do this. <laughs> I remember I was talking with the marketing director at one of the largest publishing companies in the country, especially in a certain genre. And when I talked to him about this technique of split testing covers, he had never heard of it before. 
dumbfounded. And they they just go with, you know, whoever is the highest paid person gets to pick the cover and they don't use any testing. Even if this is a book that they spent $50,000 on the advance, $100,000 on the advance, they don't do any testing. They don't even spend $50 to test to see if this really is the best performing cover. It boggles my mind. So you may think, oh, I'm an indie author. I don't have access to the best stuff. It's like, Actually, you may be using better techniques than the biggest traditional publishing companies are. And yeah, this is actually where the second book in the series comes in. So I had five covers and none of them were actually doing very well. And I'm looking at the split test for book one and I'm getting, I think, a seven, seven and a half percent click through rate and everything else is getting three. So I thought, why not just generate more covers and just start testing those against what I had going? So what ended up happening is I think I ended up creating about 10 new covers to test and eventually found the cover that actually did win, which wasn't even part of the the original asking people to pick a cover anyway, which is kind of hilarious. But it's financially possible since you're using AI because these are all illustrated covers. They look like they're hand-drawn by human, <laughs> even though they're inspired by human. And to have an illustrator illustrate 10 different covers, that would cost a fantastic amount of money, more than even many big traditionally published books are willing to spend on a budget. And yet by using AI tools, you're like, oh, these five, they're not working. Let's do five more. <laughs> and that wasn't like, a, uh, we're going to need thousands of dollars for that. It's like, no, you just go back to mid-journey and you fiddle with your inputs. What did you change from the first wave of the covers that weren't really working to the second wave? What words did you use differently? To be honest, I didn't use any different words. I used the exact same prompt every single time <laughs> until an image actually worked because the images do look very different. And I spent hours and hours. Here's, here's another thing. A lot of people think that AI is you press a button and you get what you want. A lot of what it gives you is actually unusable. Sometimes it'll give you, it, it's notoriously terrible with hands and it's a little bit terrifying sometimes if you see someone with 12 fingers. So you can't really use that. I have illustrative abilities. I come from a graphic design background, so I could fix that, but it's a lot of work to fix. And then sometimes if you're really unlucky, you'll have someone's arm turning into a torso and having a head growing out of it. It gets really grotesque. My wife sent me a American Sign Language book generated by AI, and it was horrifying the fingers had their own hands <laughs> splitting off into more fingers and none of the hands had exactly five fingers it was very disturbing it was like if this is sign language i don't want it <laughs> it's like the nightmare sequence in the original doctor strange when he's going through like the different worlds and his hand grows hands it, you get that from ai it's a little a little bit terrifying but you Basically, what it comes down to is you have to spend hours generating enough material that you have a few that are really good that you can test. So initially, you were fiddling with the inputs and putting together this paragraph describing the scene. I want two people. The girl has uh, red hair and, and a blue shirt, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can use that exact same paragraph and you click generate and then you copy and paste and you click generate again, you get wildly different images. And I think this is a common mistake a lot of people make is that they do what you did, 
they they describe the scene, they click generate, and they get the monstrosity. They get the hand with 12 fingers and another hand coming out of the finger. And they're like, AI is stupid. Everyone who's recommended AI is stupid. And they leave. <laughs> Whereas if they just clicked generate one more time on that same input, they may have gotten a good version the next time or the 10th time. And this is a real shift in thinking because it used to be that this was expensive. Getting an artist to make a piece of art is very time expensive. And so the whole structure of design was designed on maximizing the illustrator's illustrating time. And I remember going through this with web design. On print design, what's expensive is paper. And the design techniques is all about squishing as much stuff around this page as possible so that you don't waste paper because paper is really expensive. So you'll have a photo and the text will wrap around that photo really tightly. It's how it's done in newspapers, it's how it's done on magazines. And so people get websites and they're like, oh, the text should wrap. It's like, well, but there's no paper. And the reason the text wrapped was to save paper. And online, the quote unquote paper is free, but what's limited is people's attention. And having some white space actually helps reset people's attention and give people some breathing room. And they'll actually spend more time reading your article if you don't wrap the text. And that shift of thinking is often really difficult because those old rules existed for old reasons and AI is changing the rules. And the metaphor I used before is like it's going from a typewriter to a word processor. It used to be editing was really difficult. You had to type out the book again, you had to underline it with a red pen, and it's this really painful experience. And so you wanted that first draft to be as good as possible when you're writing on a typewriter. But with a word processor, the editing is easy <laughs> comparatively. It's the rough draft, the first draft that's hard. And so the way people tend to write books now in the word processor age is with much more emphasis on editing. And so this kind of shift in thinking of like, yeah, let's just generate five more covers is you're really ahead of the curve in that you've already kind of started to figure out what's changing in this new world. So you have done a really good job with your protagonist, this red haired young woman, keeping her consistent from image to image, which is really important. But let's assume she doesn't die, you know, at the end of the next book, she's probably going to be on all your covers. And how do you keep her consistent where she looks like the same person book to book using these AI tools. This is, again, one of the downsides of using AI is that there's literally no way to do that. And I've, I've tested it quite extensively. Even if you describe how hooked the nose is, for example, or full lips or, you know, heart-shaped face, it really doesn't actually keep to that. So again, it's just you generate a lot of art and you hope that it looks very similar. I have a reader magnet on my website and the male character on that book cover is supposed to be the same male character on the second book cover. And it's similar enough where I was like, that's good enough. So I went with it, but there is actually no way to keep it consistent. And in fact, I think in some ways, the best way for people to use AI if they have the budget is to A-B test in the way that I did and then go to an illustrator and go, paint me this as close as you can. And this is what the character should look like and just do that for each and every book. Just go back to the same illustrator. They'll have the color palette. They'll have what the composition should be. And they can actually do that much better than AI could. 
So you're basically using AI to generate a really, really in-depth design document. <laughs> it's like, here's exactly you're using AI to describe what you want. And you maybe have, you know, here are five things that AI got wrong that I want you to fix. Or, you know, you give a little bit of guidance, but you're using it to make it easier to communicate with the illustrator. And this is, I want to point this out, because a lot of people are like, oh, the, the robots are coming for our jobs. We're all going to be out of work. And I was like, well, you know, if, if you really think that, just look at the unemployment rate. When we're recording this, there's like, in the United States anyway, there's twice as many open jobs as there are people looking for jobs. <laughs> so if the robots are coming for our jobs, they're doing it really, really slowly. <laughs> so what tends to happen if you observe technological revolutions, because this isn't the first or the 20th time this has happened, is that it does shift some jobs around, but it often creates more jobs in total. And we have far more people doing more things now than we did 200 years ago. We had fewer people and they were doing fewer things. This isn't necessarily putting illustrators out of a job, but it is changing their job. Where now, it used to be a big part of being an illustrator was talking with the client and figuring out what they want. And that was also one of the biggest points of frustration because you have a conversation with the designer, you have a picture in your head of what it's going to look like, they have a picture in their head, and you're talking, you both are convinced the other person has your picture in their head, and then the designer paints what's in their head, and you're like, no, that's not what was in my head at all. This is terrible. Change these 20 things, and now you're both unhappy. And so this is potentially helping reduce some of that friction while still giving that designer work to do. Now, as I look at your covers, I noticed that it's got really strong typography. I assume that you didn't do this with MidJourney. Did you add this later? Yeah. So I do come from a graphic design background. Some of my first jobs was graphic design. And again, there's actually a lot of graphic manipulation that went into the actual images. The images weren't generated by AI and I put it on the cover. One of the prompts that I did use, two great prompts, if anyone is going to be using this method, is movie poster and book cover art. Those will give you compositions that look really, really good. Unfortunately, it'll also give you gibberish letters that will go <laughs> over top. There's nothing like it's kind of weird this way. The compositions are the best when you do that, but then you have to go into Photoshop and remove it. And, you know, it's not in layers. You have to go in. And fortunately, if you know enough about Photoshop, it's not that hard. And for those of you listening in the far future, this will probably be fixed. <laughs> I imagine by the time we get to the next two or three versions of Dolly, they'll have figured out a way to remove the gibberish letters from the book cover. I'm still waiting for five finger hands. So hopefully they'll do that. <laughs> so I did do the typography, what I added to it. The art usually made her too short and it made a little bit too much white space. I know I'm going a bit into the graphic design elements of this. The faces weren't exactly right. I used a different service for that. Even the resolution sizes aren't great for print. So I had to go into another AI program to upscale it. When someone says you press a button, it generates art. There's actually a lot of work that goes into understanding the way that, that it works and all of the necessary steps that you have to do afterwards in order to create book cover art using AI. So upscaling is taking a low resolution image and making a high resolution image, it's basically taking a SD version and making an HD version. So what service did you use for upscaling? 
I do not remember it. It was a free service. There's a lot of free services. You can just Google them and they'll do up to uh, usually about 4X, which is all you really need for a print cover. So just Google AI image upscaling. When we're done with this episode, I may post a few recommendations in the show notes at authormedia.com. What did you use for the faces? The faces was a script that I found that you'd load into your own like Google Drive. Uh, that someone created. I'm not even sure it has a name, but it's supposed to be used for low res images of faces. So from like way back when, when you scan in a picture and the resolution is blurry, it, it was designed to sort of clean it up. And there was a YouTube video that I saw who was using it with, I believe it was Dolly to clean up faces. And it it looked really, really good. So I decided to sort of try it out. I can get you a link to it as well. It's fantastic, actually. Yeah. And we'll hopefully also have that YouTube video in the show notes, (laughs) walking you through how to do it. And this actually illustrates another technique that's an important technique for AI, and that is using multiple different AI tools for multiple different tasks. Danny's using one tool for creating the initial image, and then he's using another tool to generally upscale that image. And then he's using a different tool to specifically upscale the faces. It's kind of like going from hand tools to power tools. Once you start using power tools, you have a power drill and a power saw and a power screwdriver. And there's all these different power tools. And just because they use a battery doesn't mean that you use them in the same way. And so AI isn't just one tool. It's a whole bunch of different tools. Any other tips or advice for somebody using MidJourney to do their cover? Not for the cover, but it's really, really good for developing ideas. If you're trying to create a new character, per se, you can start putting in like, I think that they might have black hair and blue eyes, and it'll create a character for you. Or if you're like, I want to write a scene set in a tavern, you can use it like low lit tavern candles on table, and it'll create a tavern environment. And when you're writing, you can actually use that. It's like you literally just describe what you've seen. It's a it's a great little shortcut if you have some descriptive basic writer's block. This is a technique that's used quite a bit in filming where they will have somebody create a storyboard, which is like a comic book picture of the scene. And some directors are really famous for storyboarding the whole thing ahead of time. Alfred Hitchcock was this way. He actually found the filming to be very boring because he'd already solved all of the scenes and figured them all out ahead of time in the storyboard. But having a storyboard artist working with you, really expensive <laughs> to pay somebody to sit there, right? To story, and they're getting union money. It's, it's big money. But you're using MidJourney to basically be your storyboard artist. You kind of get your storyboards for the scene, which then helps you give really good detail. So again, it's not replacing you. It's not doing the work for you. It's just helping you do better work than what you've done otherwise. It's not like you don't know how to describe a tavern. <laughs> but now it's like, oh, yeah, I should probably include the bar stools, or maybe I shouldn't, right? And it gives you some ideas, helps you think about it in a different way. Exactly. Okay, so now let's go to ChatGPT, because this is what everyone's all abuzz about, all of Twitter. <laughs> so instead of using PseudoWrite or some of the other tools specifically for authors, you jumped straight into ChatGPT and used it to help you write your book. So walk us through what that was like. Well, for ChatGPT, it's actually not for writing the book series that I'm writing now. It was for a completely separate series that had just been noodling around in the back of my head. 
And just for some context, I knew that it was going to be four books and I knew who the main character was and I had some story beats. I just didn't have the time to really sit down and sort of outline the entire series, do all the world building of it. So it kind of just sat on the shelf. But with ChatGPT becoming headline news pretty much everywhere, I was pretty curious, like, how can I use this tool to sort of just get that thing out the door? And so I spent a good weekend. So it was a solid two days playing around with it. And by the end of it, I had the outline, the main outline for four books with the world building. And it was incredible just to sort of like what usually takes me a couple of months to brainstorm. I did in two days and it was mind blowing just to be able to do that. Wow. So what do you mean by playing around with it? What were you doing? Well, Again, like uh, mid-journey, you kind of have to figure out how to talk to the AI. For example, if you want an outline, you literally have to ask it to provide an outline based on the following synopsis. If you say outline the following synopsis, it might just write exactly what you wrote. And that is not helpful. (laughs) But if you say provide a detailed outline, it'll take your one paragraph and it'll sort of like start filling in some details. So if you have like point A, point C, and point E, it'll fill in the details in sometimes interesting ways that you didn't expect, but make absolute sense for the way that the story should go. But again, like mid-journey, most of the stuff that it will give you is not really useful. Most of the time, it'll actually inspire something else in your mind. You'll be like, I don't like what it just told me, but I really like the direction it's going in. And you can modify that. And the great thing about ChatGPT is that it does remember what you've said before or what you've written before, and it will take that into account. So you can actually start having a conversation with it and tell it, I don't like this, rewrite it and include these details. And it'll give you those details and you'll just keep on sort of like developing that way. It's like having a really enthusiastic brainstorming partner who loves all of your ideas and is riffing off of your ideas, even though most of their ideas aren't very helpful. <laughs> but they're really enthusiastic to be a part of the process. Like maybe a better metaphor is like it's going like on a walk for, with your dog. Your dog doesn't necessarily know where you're going or why you're going, but by golly, he's happy to be going for a walk. And the fact that you're going for a walk and you're doing it with the dog makes it more fun than doing it on your own. So everyone knows the Three Musketeers, Count of Monte Cristo, Alexander Dumas. What people don't realize is that those books were actually co-written. And the other author, I believe his name's Auguste Maquette, there's a French movie about this. He was never given credit, and they wrote 18 books together. And it's some of the most popular Dumas books. And he tried to sue the publisher, and the courts basically voted against him. They ruled against Auguste Maquette, and he never got his names on those books. But he was actually the one who outlined the story. So in kind of the same way, that's how I'm approaching ChatGPT. He's my Auguste Maquette, and from there, I develop the story. I'll change things as I write it, because that's the process of writing. You have the initial idea. So you have a paragraph and you say, turn this paragraph into an outline. And some of that's usable, some of it's not, or maybe it just inspires you to write it. Then do you continue using it? Do you take that outline and be like, okay, now use this outline to generate a chapter? Or do you then write the chapter on your own? 
You could use it to generate a chapter. Usually what I'll do is I'll actually tell it to generate 10 chapter titles. There is a word count with ChatGPT currently, and 10 chapter titles is really where it kind of stops. And it'll give you sort of ideas of how to break that story into 10 chapters. And I, I'm not going to use just 10 chapters in a book, but it gives you sort of a, an idea of the way that the book will be outlined. So if you think of it in terms of sequences of the book, it'll give you those sequences. And then from there, I tried using it to actually write the chapters, but it's not very good at it. It's uh, The prose is very, very awful. And the dialogue is far too on point. There is no subtext with ChatGPT. <laughs> And I should say in the intro, I talked about how ChatGPT was able to pass these college exams. If you actually read the article, you'll see that while it did pass, it's got a C grade on the essay. So it's not great. Obviously, GPT-4 and GPT-4.5, those of you listening in the future, it'll be better. But it will never replace the beauty that a human can do, especially when it comes to the subtext metaphor and saying two things at the same time. I mean, maybe it'll get there, but I suspect that level of intent is always going to need a human's hand guiding the process pretty closely. So you can use AI to write that kind of book, but you're going to have to be constantly judging, which is another thing that's really similar. So, you know, you're like, what does the text in the photos have in common? Why are you doing this, both of these topics in one episode? It's like, it's a really similar process. Danny, a lot of what you're doing is judging. No, you have to know what good prose looks like. You have to know what a good cover looks like, right? Because to get those eight dazzling covers, maybe you looked at 800 terrible covers. And you use the judgment to say, okay, these are the eight I'm going to take to authormedia.social. And these are the three I'm going to actually test on Facebook. You couldn't have taken all 800 and tested them on Facebook. At least not for $50 you couldn't have. No. And sort of a very, very good quick way to sketch things in, to rough it in. It's as if Michelangelo's first hour making David, it's basically that. It'll give you an approximation of what a human will look like, and then you sort of have to take it the rest of the way yourself. And again, the other thing that comes into this is it's a lot of work and research just to understand how to talk to the AI. It doesn't really understand anything which is kind of strange because the whole thing about it is that it understands everything, but it doesn't. It doesn't know what context anything is. If you try to make it write a story for you without giving it any direction, it'll give you princess in a tower because that's all that it knows. It, it won't add any of that creative spark that makes a story pop, nor will it really have a good voice and that's really why people read books, is they read books for the author's voice. And you cannot get that, at least not yet, from something like ChatGPT or even Pseudorite. It, I'm going to say basic. Basic is not the right word, but it's kind of basic text. Rudimentary might be an, another good word. It's kind of the standard kind of default type description. I want to know how to talk to the AI. I've tried and it didn't really work. So what are some tips that you have for somebody who, whether it's talking with MidJourney or GPT or PseudoWrite or one of these other tools, how do you learn to become fluent where you can help the computer understand you? With MidJourney, there is an entire community behind it. So you can actually go into the community tab and look at what other people are using for prompts. So you can see what the prompts are and what the images that are popping up look like. And you start 
getting an idea of why Midjourney is creating the image the way that it is. For instance, someone will have volumetric lighting as part of the prompt. And in those images, you'll usually see kind of like a smoky kind of background, things sort of like disappearing into the mist. And so you sort of catalog that. It's like, oh, whenever I need something that looks like that, I know to add volumetric lighting. If you want something to look more real, you can use a term like ultra-realistic. And again, these are terms that I found just by looking at what other people did. And that's probably the best advice is to just see what other people are doing, test it out, see what the outcomes are. And if that doesn't work, just play with it. It's not going to bite. You just have to play with it and see what it does and figure out why it gave you what it did. I think this is why mid-journey, at least as we record this, is winning the battle for market share, especially with authors, is because the fact that it's run through Discord, and currently you can use it for free and you get a certain number of free prompts, but if the free prompts you have to do publicly. So you can just be on Discord and watch people try to get the, the image that they're trying to get, right? So they'll try one prompt and it's not quite right. So they'll try another prompt. So you get to see how the image shifts around. As you use it, your vocabulary for how you use it develops. And it becomes a little bit more second nature. It's literally just learning a new language of how to speak to an AI. Chat GPT is a little bit easier to talk to because you can literally just ask it questions, which is another really, really good tip. You can put in a synopsis or even a chapter and ask Chat GPT a question about it, like provide three other things that the main character could be doing in this scene. And it'll give you three other ideas. And if your scene is not working the way, if it's a little bit boring, it'll sort of like give you some concepts to play around with. And maybe none of those ideas will work, but it'll give you something to sort of just inspire. And this is one of the things that's the controversial element, which we should probably touch on the ethics, because you can say, give me a cover inspired by Rembrandt. And it will give you an image that's a Rembrandt-style image. And I think everyone's okay with that, right? Rembrandt's been dead long enough. He doesn't have errors that are going to get mad. Not all of his stuff is in the public domain, so that's fine. But you could also pick a living artist and say, give me a Danny Santos-style book cover. But don't give Danny Santos any money, right? Just use his visual style. And there's currently, as we record this, a lawsuit's just been filed with some artists suing a deviant art, which has made its library of art available to train these AI algorithms. And not to explain AI in too much detail, but real briefly, to teach the AI how to make art, it looks at art. The same way you teach an art student, right? Here's some great pieces of art. Here's how they were done. Teach the AI the same kind of way. But then it has better memory than us humans. And so it can be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to bring up to memory these specific kinds of images to inspire me on this specific project. So what are your thoughts on the ethics? So if you were an artist, how would you feel if I had a Danny Santis inspired book cover? Yeah, this is where we get into some sticky territory. There's a great video by Legal Eagle. He covered a lot of the lawsuits that have been filed that are similar. The lowdown for that is it's really complicated and way past my pay grade. I don't have a really good answer because it is so new. And I really hope what people 
bring to it is a more sort of ethical thing. Use it as as a tool. Don't use it as a way to sort of like copy. I don't want to write a Brandon Sanderson book. I want to write a Danny F. Santos book. I'm assuming at some point in time, you might be able to do that. You might say, spit out a Brandon Sanderson novel, and then you could possibly put your name on it. I do not do that. Yeah, I think that's well said. When it comes to ethics, while the application here is new and kind of weird, the ethical framework is not, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a really good ethical heuristic that I think is really helpful in this context. Would you want somebody using AI to steal your style? No. Do you mind if somebody uses AI generally to make their stuff better? Probably not. I don't care. And so if it, as long as it's generally pulling on me as well as, you know, a million other people, it, it doesn't bother me. But if it's specifically taking a Thomas Umstadt style and copying it, then that does feel a little bit more like a violation. And I think using the golden rule is a good way to navigate the, this new weirdness. The only thing that I would add to that, and this actually probably dovetails pretty nicely with the uh, ethics, is that anything fully generated by AI is not covered under copyright. There have been a few court cases about this. Uh, the most famous one was the monkey that took a picture of itself. PETA wanted the monkey to get the credit, but the courts ruled that only a human could have copyrights. So if you do create a book and it's entirely AI generated, odds are that it's actually not covered under copyright. You can't actually copyright it under your name. And I believe this is something that has just happened with a uh, comic book that was generated solely using AI, both for the text and for the images. So that is something to sort of like keep your eye on. I actually really love that because I hope that that will discourage people from going 100% AI because that's not what I'm recommending. That's not what you're recommending. When we had the guys on from PseudoWrite, that's not what they're recommending. Nobody's recommending that, right? This is a tool to help you. You don't let the drill build the house for you. The drill helps you build the house, but you're still building the house. And so, yeah, don't, don't do that. Don't flood Amazon with a bunch of 100% AI books. ChatGPT just today or yesterday as I'm recording this rolled out a tool that will be used to detect AI text. So basically it's a reverse engineered version of ChatGPT that uses the predictive algorithm to guess how likely that text was to have been AI generated, which may set the world on fire because people will be able to use that to see if comments are real <laughs> on Twitter and YouTube and other places. And I think it will be a little mind boggling as they realize how much online interaction people are doing is not with other humans. So that's my hot take. You can fact check me on that a year from now if that uh, set the world on fire or not. Probably not, but who knows? <laughs> but I encourage you to play with it. And the attitude, Danny, that you had, you were very serious, but you were also just trying stuff. The fact that you got a bad text back from ChatGPT that wasn't usable or MidJourney gave you a terrible image, you didn't see that as you failing or the tool failing. You're just like, we're just going to keep playing with it. So it's like my one-year-old learning to walk. He's taking some steps, but he's mostly crawling. <laughs> he's scooching around. And you just try stuff, getting comfortable with it, learning the fluency of interacting with the computer. And the better you learn now how to interact with these AI tools, the easier they'll be to learn later. What you don't want to do is wake up and realize that everybody else is able to write books faster and better than you are because they're using these AI tools and you weren't using them. And now you're grasping, trying to catch up while your books are struggling to sell. Actually, I'm glad that you brought that up because I did run some numbers 
I'm a I'm a pretty big data guy, so I like to keep numbers with me. So I found that using something like Pseudowrite to help me write a first draft, I'm only about 16% faster. It's not really that much. And part of the reason is because you have to wait for it to generate some ideas. It's pretty quick, but you still have to wait for that. It'll generate several ideas. And sometimes those ideas you can't use. They're not good. So if you think that you can just use this to plow through a first draft, here's another number. If you use dictation, I'm 63% faster doing that. So you're, you're <laughs> literally faster using dictation than you are using these AI tools currently. Very well said. And I will say the way that I'm seeing authors using PseudoWrite is more to help with the brainstorming because you're exactly right. Dictation, which is also AI, it's using AI to turn your voice into text. It's much simpler AI. That's far more popular. A lot of authors are playing around with dictation right now, which again, when a technology is new, there's a bunch of different ways to use it. So like, for instance, a hundred years ago, we knew flying was possible. And we had two competing technologies for flying. We had Zeppelins and we had airplanes. And they were both incredibly dangerous. <laughs> People And airplanes were 100% fatal. You die in an airplane. If your plane crashes, you 100% die. If your Zeppelin crashes, like the Hindenburg, not everyone died on the Hindenburg. A lot of people survived the Hindenburg crash. It's a very famous crash, but it had a lot of survivors. If it had been an airplane, not so much. And so at the time, you're like, well, obviously, Zeppelin technology is going to win and these dangerous airplanes aren't going to win. And now looking back, we're like, there's one blimp that advertises tires of all things. And for most people, that's the only blimp they've ever seen. <laughs> we don't know. It may be that this, you know, chat GPT is just a fad and, and people are going to do dictation. I don't think so. I think it's going to get faster that waiting you're talking about you have to wait for it to get back to you. That's going to get faster. The prompts are going to get better. But the dictation is also going to get better. You know, when I was a kid, I had Dragon 1 on my computer, and it was awful. <laughs> Dragon's still pretty awful. But the better dictation tools put in the punctuation. They put the commas in. They, they put the capitalization. They give you really good-looking text very quickly. So it's fun to watch this. And I encourage you not to write it off. Because I think that's the biggest temptation is you get overwhelmed or you get intimidated. And you're like, I'm just not going to do this at all. At least play with it. And so it, both the dictation and the pseudo write chat GPT just to get a feel for it and see if it might help you write better or faster. Now I should go, I should ask you. So while the dictation helps faster, which do you think has a better impact on the quality? Oh, definitely a pseudo write, actually. My favorite tool is actually uh, show don't tell. So I will write a first draft and I'll have, like most writers who are drafting very quickly, usually tell more than you show. And you can just select what you've written and ask it to show, don't tell. So it's a little bit more descriptive. And then I'll go in and I'll edit that description because a lot of the time, even that description is not very good. And again, it's, it doesn't have my voice and that's why I write. But the ability for that to sort of take what I've written in tell and translated to show is is really, really useful. And again, a lot of this is just, it gives you ideas as opposed to any finished product. Well said. And we'll have a link to PseudoWrite. It, it's S-U-D-O-W-R-I-T-E.com. I'm going to look into signing up for their affiliate program. I don't think we had an affiliate program last time. I, had, I did a whole episode about them. <laughs> so we might have affiliate links. You can find them at the show notes for this episode. I also encourage you to check out uh, Danny F. Santos's books. 
and in particular, look at the covers and be honest. Do these look like AI generated covers? Or we'll have that at the show notes. Uh, Danny, where can people find out more about you? They can find me online at dannyfsantos.com and uh, dannyfsantos on Twitter. Pretty much just look for my name and you'll probably be able to find me. There you go. And we'll have links, of course, to his books and his website at authormedia.com slash 358. Our featured patron today is Kamwela Kaneshiro, author of Legends from the Pacific, book one. Have you ever been curious about Asian and Pacific folklore? Like what the Brothers Grimm did with Germanic folklore, Kamwela has spent years doing with folktales from all around the Pacific. Join Pele in her search for sanctuary, confront the Philippines' shape-shifting vampire, and battle the dreaded Wendigo, and more. If you write an epic fantasy and want some fresh ideas to pull from, then grab a copy on Amazon or from legendsfromthepacific.com. And I should add that Legends from the Pacific is also a podcast, and you can listen to a legend every week at legendsfromthepacific.com. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., joined by Danny F. Santos, talking about AI. And these really are our voices, and they really are our ideas. Our producer is Lori Christine. The auto engineering is by William Umstead. The blog post is crafted initially by an AI algorithm, turning our voices into text, and then turned from that terrible version into a blog post by Shauna Lettler. And you can find that blog post version at authormedia.com slash three five. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.